Welcome to Herrick Does That, a podcast on current legal topics, relevant industry and legal trends, and significant developments in the law, brought to you by the attorneys of Herrick Feinstein. I am Belinda Schwartz, Herrick's executive chair, and I want to thank you for joining us. Good morning, everyone. It's Belinda Schwartz. I'm the executive chair of Herrick Feinstein and also the co-chair of our real estate group. And I am honored and thrilled to be speaking with my friend, Bill Freed, who is the co-chair of the litigation department and one of our go-to real estate litigators. And the topic for today is, not surprisingly, the distressed real estate market. Hi, Bill. Good morning. I'm really happy to be speaking with you because, as you know, the real estate market is having a moment, uh, specifically focusing on the commercial real estate market. And I know you've been through different cycles, and so I wanted to ask you whether this cycle feels different from past distress cycles, and if so, how is it different? Yeah, so I mean, obviously there there are some differences from the last time, the 0708 um, market crash. Let's start um, the most obvious. We've just come out of uh, a pandemic. So we had basically a year plus where people weren't leaving their homes, unfortunately. So that's had a a dramatic impact on the commercial market for sure. You have that together with the fact that there's the internet has dramatically impacted space. And again, people are still working from home despite our efforts to get everyone back in the office. So that that's the first thing. But there are other factors as well. You've got the um, accelerated pace of interest rates trying to deal with inflation, and they're going up really, really quickly. Um, CMBS loans, which are maturing over the next few years, and there are less and less transactions going on, and it's hard to get a good value. And, and of course, as a result of all of those things, lenders have pulled back and are not lending. So all those things together uh, have conspired to have a, a significant impact on the market. It's really incredible, right? It's like worse than a trifecta. Yeah, I mean, you put all those things together and it has had it has been a trickle to get recovery, um, especially in the business real estate world, meaning the, the office space world. You know, we see it in our own building as well as through our clients. It's you know, but it's those all of those factors combined. And um, I do think, you know, some of those things may you know, change. I'm not sure that we'll ever completely go back to the way we were pre-pandemic. Well, we'll get to that um, a little later. And I I really appreciate your bringing up those different inflection points. Um, And it's interesting to me, particularly because I know, Bill, that you represent both borrowers and lenders. And I think that makes you unique. But I'm curious, how does that make you a better counselor for our clients, in your opinion? And I guess as a corollary to that, how do you advise your borrower clients to proceed when they're dealing with their lenders? And is it different when you represent a lender? So maybe we could do the first question. How does it make you a better counselor, given that you have seen both sides? Let's start with this. Usually firms represent one side or the other. I don't know that we're the only ones, but we're unique in the fact that we represent both sides, maybe more on the lending side, but we certainly have been on the borrower's side. That gives us kind of a unique 
ability to understand what the other side is thinking. For example, if we're representing a lender, we understand the types of things that a borrower is likely to bring up to try to avoid, say, a foreclosure. And if we represent a borrower, we understand what are the things that might work. And it probably gives us an advantage in that a lender is more likely to be willing to sit down and talk to a borrower if they're represented by a firm like ours that actually understands how to do this. We are willing to roll up our sleeves and fight hard for our clients on both sides of the coin. So I think that's probably what it is. Uh, on the borrower's side, um, you know, we typically get brought in, me personally, when things are really bad. That's when then I typically come in, unless, of course, we were involved in the original transaction. But um, as you know, I, I typically get involved on the borrower's side when things are very, very bad and um, there's not a whole lot of hope there. So we have to be very creative. Um, again, because we've done this before and we tend to know what the other side is thinking, that helps a little bit. You know, I would tell you this because I know you'll ask the question. I tell um, borrowers in particular, try to avoid mezzanine loans. Um, there's a big difference between defending a foreclosure on um, land, on a mortgage, and defending um, a foreclosure on mezzanine. You really have very, very little chance to raise any defenses on a mez because um, they don't, the, bar, the lender doesn't need to go to court to foreclose you. They just schedule a sale of your membership interests and it's over in a day. So, you know, obviously I don't tell borrowers how to do their business, but if they can avoid it at all costs doing mez, they're better off. Um, the other thing I tell borrowers is, Keep an eye on your construction costs. You have to be really on top of your contractors in terms of costs and delays. Have clean hands and, and keep a very good record of your conversations with everybody. Everybody meaning your contractors, um, your design professionals, and in particular, your lenders. You know, the clean hands and keep an eye on things. I say that to lenders as well, but I always like to believe that the lender has a significant advantage um, in any of these disputes, typically the documents are drafted in a way that are very much favorable to the lender as well it should be because they're lending the money. Both sides, my advice is dot your I's, cross your T's, and don't do anything that could be perceived as acting in bad faith or, um, you know, on the lender side, lender liability. I mean, you did touch on MES debt, which was one of my questions you know, everything has been so sliced and diced. I remember when I was a young, young lawyer, you know, you had a, a mortgage and, you know, that was pretty much it. Now there's first mortgage debt that's often been participated out or syndicated A and B notes. So even lenders now have lenders themselves and they are not often the ones making the decisions. And I would assume that that is more complicated. And you also then, as you said, there's mes debt, there's pref equity now that comes in that's really a form of what's often called disguised debt. And those intercreditor and recognition agreements also need to be looked at. And I know that that's something that you caution clients about. Yeah, you you just hit it on the nose. It's very complicated now doing loans, especially when you're talking about substantial loans. We're not talking about a $2 million loan. You know, I've been dealing with one situation recently. The, the loan was 80 or $90 million and, and there's a mez and, and here's a perfect example. 
there are predatory lenders out there, so, you know, for the borrower's side, you know, without mentioning names. Um, in this particular case, there was senior, there was a senior mortgage and there was a mez by two different lenders. Somebody came in, bought both notes and is foreclosing on the mez because that's the simplest way to do it. It gets you right to the, you know, they don't have to worry about foreclosing on the senior. So the the days, uh, you know, if you have a mez debt, the days where you thought you could tie a lender up in court and get yourself a deal for a while don't exist anymore when there's a mezzanine loan. You know, and, and you're right, it's sliced and diced and it gets very complicated. Um, and again, I understand sometimes borrowers have to do what they have to do. But to me, simplicity in these loans in the loan stack is much better for the borrower side, probably for the lender side as well. But my my biggest experience has been that, you know, if you're going to do a MES debt, you better be prepared to make the payments or you're going to lose your member, membership interest in the property relatively quickly. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it is what it is. Look, it's a this is a an interesting time that we're living through. You and I have lived through other cycles But as we said at the start, this is a fairly unique cycle. I also think, Bill, and I'm curious about your thoughts, and then we'll get to one of my other questions. You know, borrowers have lived off debt for a long time, and the amount of debt on some properties is, you know, they're very leveraged, a lot of the assets, and that works until it doesn't. And I think a lot of borrowers and lenders were kind of caught off guard by the the tipping point in this market that was created because of what you spoke about at the beginning. I completely agree with that. That that's absolutely true. And and I just think that what I'm seeing is that lenders who at one time would have been willing to cut deals and work with borrowers because they saw um, a light at the end of the tunnel are far less willing to do that and are getting much more aggressive with their default notices and foreclosure positions. That that's what I'm seeing. And I that's interesting. That, and I've actually had lenders say that direct thing to me that in the past we've been very good about, you know, trying to cut deals. And if we, you know, for example, if a sponsor has something to bring to the table, you know, we were willing to look at that. But the problem nowadays is there's so much distress that a lot of these borrowers are not willing to um, write a check to stay in the deal, right? Because that was one of the things, as you know, from your own experience, if you wanted to stay in the deal or, you know, there were times when a lender would say, well, write you a check to go away. Mm-hmm. Um, you're seeing less and less of that now because um, everyone's taken such a hit on both sides. Absolutely. That is a big difference that we're seeing. Right. There's less deal. There's less deals going on. And, you know, the, the one saving grace I'd say for borrowers might be, again, non-MES foreclosure, it's very slow in particular in New York to bring a foreclosure to fruition. So even on best case scenario, through foreclosure and a sale, you're looking at a year, probably. So, I mean, and and that's a fairly quick one, Um, you know, because remember, you, you go through the whole process and that's without the borrower really challenging. So here's an example. You bring lender brings a foreclosure action. Borrower doesn't get put up a fight. It still takes six, seven, eight months plus to get the paperwork through the courts, and then they have to schedule the sale. And you'd be shocked at how long it takes a referee to be available to schedule a sale in New York. It's shocking. I had a lender tell me they took them three and a half months after the decree of foreclosure to get the sale scheduled. 
And then when they had the foreclosure sale, no one else showed up with them in their credit bid. So it can be very frustrating on the, the lender side. But my point on that is that that's the one thing that might, you know, if a borrower is looking to negotiate a deal, but and actually has something to offer, a lender might still be willing to um, talk to them simply because they know they're stuck for probably a year. Those are very insightful comments, Bill. And I really appreciate that. And I'm just curious, I mean, you are a an incredible litigator. You often bring in other specialists and experts to the table to help you in distress situations. And I'm just curious who you bring to the table with you when you when you think that that's relevant. Listen, I'm very biased about Herrick Feinstein. I'm sorry, because I, I think, and I always say this to clients, when you have the kind of real estate capabilities and bench that we have, you know, you can work much more collaboratively with your own people um, before you have to go outside. So we've got, I don't know, in your department, 50 plus real estate lawyers. I talk to people in your group all the time, usually work with them if I'm involved in a foreclosure. There are people in the real estate department that have expertise in construction, and I run the construction practice. So I work with them because, you know, lots of times in these distressed um, property and foreclosure situations is always a construction issue involved because a lot of times the delays um, or over cost overruns in construction are a direct cause of why a borrower is in default. I hate to say it, but it's true. Here's another example. I, I actually just said this to a, a client earlier, which is almost all of these foreclosure aspects have a potential bankruptcy. We talk to the people in the bankruptcy department all the time about this stuff. As far as in-house my first choice is to always go to the people at Herrick. Um, we have a, a wealth of, of knowledge internally. If I'm going to go outside, which I tend to do as well, it's more often than not on the construction side. I have, fortunately, from my own experience, I have a lot of contacts in the construction business, including close friends um, and the design professional business. So if I need advice or to hire somebody, I, I can pick up the phone and call a few of the top names in the construction business. And obviously my partners can do that too because they would get them from me. So I I often run ideas and problems by people I know in the construction business. Um, some of the people I know um, have engineering degrees, so I run those problems by them. I know some architects as well. So I, I do go outside for advice on construction disputes and design professional disputes. So that's what I do um, as far as as far as those things go. You know, my first choice is the people at Herrick. But, you know, there are people I would use outside. Um, and good news is I can call people and get free advice sometimes before I have to start spending my clients money. Bill, I know uh, oftentimes you and I work together and as you do with so many of the real estate attorneys here. And oftentimes a client will call, let's say it's a lending client and they have a potential, they have a problem with one of their borrowers on a deal. And I say to them, well, I can introduce you to Bill or, you know, is, it, is this like a workout or is this a foreclosure? And they say, we don't know. We don't know yet how it's going to go. And I know you and I often talk about how how we should present to the borrower on the other side, or if it's the reverse, do you present with a litigator or do you present with a transactional person? Maybe you could talk about that for a few minutes because that's practical advice. 
you and I actually have had that conversation many times. It's like almost a case by case basis, right? It kind of depends not just on the issues, but the personalities as well. I tend to be outspoken and aggressive, but I can put that on the back burner if necessary. But I tend to be the kind of person that you'd put in front of a client that's looking, number one, to be aggressive. But also, I I like to believe personally, I make clients feel that I have their back, meaning they know that I'm going to do whatever it takes to protect the client. More often than not, though, the client is looking for somebody like me to be very aggressive. But listen, we have great lawyers who might be more to a client's taste than me. And and you and I have gone to meetings together where I sit there and you do the talking because, first of all, you know a lot more about real estate than I do. And while you're no shrinking violet, I think that the way you come across is probably more measured than maybe somebody like me, but I like to believe we make a good team. I look at it as a very um, case-by-case basis. It depends on the client. We have a list of clients, some of whom I would say I'm the right person to be in front of, some of whom I would say I think you should get somebody else. We have had some great lawyers at the firm who were not the kind of person that can take over a room in a meeting like that, but they are brilliant lawyers who you want running your matter for you. And I tell that to clients all the time. Don't be fooled by the fact that he or she is kind of quiet in this meeting and Bill is loud and aggressive because he or she might just be the brains who saves your property. When we're in those meetings that you and I are talking about, it really depends on the facts and the client. I'm not every client's cup of tea. I recognize that. You know, and and you and I know that. You and I have had that conversation. I'll give you the example. Um, We have cases all over the country. I am not crazy enough to think that I can walk into court in Texas and the judge and the jury are going to love Bill Freed's style. I had a trial outside of Austin a few years ago. I had a local woman from Houston trying the case. And I kept my mouth shut because I wanted to win. And, you know, you've got to recognize who's the right person for that time. So um, jurisdictionally, it's different and client-wise, it's different. But but I think it sort of connects with what what was going to be my next question, which is that at this point in your where you are in your stature at the firm, clients look to you for more than just legal advice right? Business advice is saying to somebody, I'll be in the background, I'll navigate the strategy, but in Texas, you've got to use a local lawyer. That, right? That's very well said. That's very well said. And, and, and by the way, one of the reasons the client looks to somebody like you or me is that we've been doing this a long time. And while we might have a young associate who's a brilliant lawyer, he or she has been doing this four, five, six, seven years. And the old guy like me has been doing this for a long time. And as I said to a potential client this morning, I don't think there's any kind of real estate dispute that we haven't seen at Herrick. So um, that is very true. I give life advice to clients all the time. Um, I say to clients, I've been doing this a long time. You're paying good money for our time. Um, You should take my advice on this. Um, And it's not always legal advice. You know, a perfect example would be for me to say to a client, a borrowing client, if you don't think you're going to be able to make the next payment, don't sign this agreement and make this payment because you're just giving money away. That's, you know, that's not legal advice, right? That's just 
simple, straightforward, common sense advice. And, um, you know, and I'll tell a, a lending client, um, this borrower is going to throw as much crap against the wall as they can and drag us through the courts for a year. I think we should sit down with them and try to cut a deal. And, the, you know, and the client may be unhappy about that. But my reaction might be, listen, I'm happy to spend a year litigating and you can pay more legal fees um, or you can sit down and try to cut a deal now. You have to, you know, and then part of that comes from knowing your adversaries, right? Um, my advice is often based on a combination of knowing who's on the other side and having been through this before. I think that's, you know, you're right. As we get older and more experienced, I give more and more life advice than I do actual legal advice. Personally, I think you give both, but that's a good thing. We're coming to the ends of the podcast, but I was hoping we could end on an optimistic note. And I'm curious whether you think there's going to be more distress before our clients feel less distressed. Well, I, I'll go on the, the negative part first. I, I do think that we're going to see, you know, based on what I am hearing and the so many maturing loans in the next, you could, you could speak to as well, in the next 12 months, I think it's going to probably get worse before it gets better. Like here's an example. Um, the hospitality business, I think, will be okay. And you and I have talked about this. I think it's recovering nicely, both in New York as well as the rest of the country and actually abroad. Hospitality seems to be recovering. Even the restaurant business um, is doing much better in New York now. It's hard to be positive on the retail end, um, really, because of the things I said earlier, and, and, and especially the impact of, of direct delivery and shopping. I, I think they, they, you may see a lot of changing of, of retail space. However, listen, we wondered in 2007 and 8 and 9 whether we were going to ever recover from that, and we did. Um, it took a while. You and I both lived it. So... I would take that as a positive that if we could get through that, um, we should be able to get through this. Um, from New York in particular, people still want to live in New York. Um, wealthy people are still willing to put money into New York. I've seen it. There are still incredible sales of high-end units going on. So I, I think there is – it's going to be get, get probably bad first. Um Worse first, but I do think that there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel because, and I'm giving you that based on my own experience, that New York always rallies, plus um, the country, this country always rallies. Um, I'm very biased, believing it's still the greatest place in the world to live, no matter how crazy it is. Um, and I say that about New York as well. So I, I do think things will slow. I just think it's going to be a slower recovery than last time. I think you're looking at a much more drawn out and people are going to have to be patient. And and most importantly, people, owners of real estate and lenders are going to have to get much more creative than they ever have before on repurposing. I agree, Bill. And on that note... I want to thank you so much for speaking with me today. And uh, we'll have a follow-up conversation in six months or a year. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you very much for joining us for Herrick's podcast, Herrick Does That. To learn more about our firm and to listen to additional podcast episodes, please visit us at www.herrick.com.